0: Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. And I feel all of a sudden I need to say this. I have a translation that is different than what is in the pews. It's okay. There's minor differences. It's no big deal. You are in the right place if I'm in the right place. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire, distributing on themselves everyone who was in the house. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing the speaking of everyone in their own language. And so they were astounded, and marveling, they said, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans." How is it that we each hear from them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the district of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in astonishment and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking And we're saying they are full of new wine. So bow with me one more time as we begin this text. Jesus, as always, thank you for yourself. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to take up residence in our very souls, in our very hearts, and to change our hearts, and to change our minds, to change our affections, to make us new creations, to to make us born again. I pray, Lord, tonight that your word would be spoken, that your word would be preached, that I would set aside, my, set aside my own opinions and preferences, especially with a text like this, that we would just look at what is in Scripture and that we would open our, our minds and our hearts humbly to learn from what it is that you have to teach us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for guiding us and for directing us and for never leaving us and for never forsaking us. Your work on the cross is finished. But you are still with us in this very moment. And so we are here to listen to you and to learn from you. Please speak to us by the power of your spirit, through your written word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we continue our study in Acts, I constantly want to be pulling back from previous verses, from previous chapters. As we move forward in Acts, the way to do that, I think, is to constantly be Beginning by taking a few steps back and reminding us where we are, what's happening, what are we talking about, what's the full context of this event, what's the full context of this history, what's the full context of of the work of redemption at this exact moment here at this event in Pentecost. What is it that's happening? And what's happening is Jesus Christ is victorious. We'll begin with that. Everything that he suffered on the cross, everything that assailed him, everything that came against him, all of his turmoil, all of his trial, all of the people speaking against him, lying about him, bearing false witness, Judas betraying him, Peter denying him, his 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 walk up to Golgotha and and dying on a cross, all of that was part of the plan. It was not Jesus being victimized. It was him being a willing and informed volunteer. He knew what he was getting into. He came to seek and to save the lost. And the work on the cross, not only was he in control, but he was accomplishing with perfection everything that the Father had set out for him to do. Our Jesus is a victorious king. And his bloodied and mutilated body on the cross hanging dead does not look like victory as far as we understand victory, but this is a different kingdom. He, is, he came to inaugurate his kingdom, to plant his church, to send out his people, to proclaim his gospel to those that are lost, to those that are not saved. That is what he came to do, to seek and to save the lost. And his ascension is a proof of that victory. His ascension is proof that he was not victimized He did not fail. God's plan did not fall apart, but it came to absolute fruition. And when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he meant that as a victory statement. He didn't quit or give up. He did exactly what he had set out to do. And the work still continues. He ascends up into heaven, and he sends his Holy Spirit to his people to continue the work that he set out to do. This book of Acts starts off with... Luke saying that this is everything, the the gospel account of Luke is everything that Jesus began to do and teach, which means that the book of Acts is everything that Jesus continues to do and to teach by the power of his sent Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, through the work of the people who the Holy Spirit indwells. In chapter one, the Spirit is promised. In chapter two, the Spirit is sent. In chapter one, Jesus tells his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait. In chapter two, They are filled, they are baptized, and they are sent out. In chapter 1, Jesus ascends into heaven. In chapter 2, the Spirit comes down to earth to indwell the 120 who are here in this moment. This is the continued work of Christ through his people. Jesus promised, Jesus spoke of his church throughout the gospels. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus looks at Peter right in the eyes and he says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He promised in John 14, I will send a helper. He said, it's actually to your benefit that I go. It's to your benefit that I go to the cross, that I die, that I raise again, that I ascend to the Father. It's to your benefit that all that happens because otherwise the helper would not come. He promised to send the helper, the paraclete, God the Spirit himself was going to come once Jesus was glorified and ascended into heaven. And both of those things, The inauguration of Christ's church here on earth and the sending of the Holy Spirit and power both happen here at this moment in Pentecost. And Pentecost is not just some random arbitrary event or day that the Lord just sort of picked willy-nilly out of the sky. And I always thought that that was true. I actually, I I remember years ago someone mentioning Pentecost and I was thinking, you know, being somebody that grew up in the church, I, I thought I should know what Pentecost is, but I don't. I know what happened at Pentecost. I know that the Spirit came down. I don't really know what that means. People spoke in tongues. I don't really know what that means. But I I don't know what Pentecost is. Pentecost was not an accident. And I want to take some time. Please don't glaze over don't start looking at your phone. I'm gonna go into the history of the church, the history of the Old Testament. The reason why I'm doing it is because I wanna show you that time and time again throughout the Gospel of Acts, we're gonna see that Jesus is referred to through the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. In his sermon on the mount, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And part of that fulfilling was just him showing up to begin with everything was pointing to jesus every ceremony every sacrifice every ritual every feast was a sign signifying the messiah that was to come and that and that the signs found their culmination in the person jesus christ living dead risen and ascended and so pentecost is very intentional pentecost is one of the feasts of the old testament in Deuteronomy 16, 16, write this down. Write these, these verses down. And the reason is because I want to show you how connected the Bible is, how perfect it is, how planned out it is, how, how with math- mathematical precision God the Spirit wrote this book through the hands of fallen men. It's a miracle that we have the Bible. People died to get us the Bible in English. And it's important that we know this. It's important that we see Jesus in the Old Testament and in the New. It's all one big work of cohesion it's all put together in Deuteronomy 16 16 there's three feasts that Yahweh says the men of Israel are required to go to these feasts its the feast of Passover it's the feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths three feasts that are required every year for Jews to attend in Jerusalem and they did and Pentecost was one of them Pentecost is a feast from the Old Testament but if you turn to Leviticus 23 Leviticus 23 lays out these feasts in a row. And the first feast that Leviticus 23 lays out is the first one, the Sabbath, or excuse me, the Passover, probably the most well-known of all of the feasts, the Passover feast. And the second feast is the Feast of fruits, And the third feast is the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as the Feast of Pentecost. And I'll explain why it's called the Feast of Weeks here in a minute. A lot of the feasts have one or two names, but we've got the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Pentecost. And the reason why that's important is because Jesus fulfills every one of them with the, with the succession of his life. One by one, in numerical order, he fulfills all of these signs that were signifying him to begin with. The Feast of Passover, Exodus chapter 12. You probably know the story. Moses comes to Egypt, he says, let my people go, get Israel out of slavery. And Pharaoh said, no, time and time and time again. And Moses, through the power of God, did all these miracles. He did nine signs, most of which were brutalizing and horrifying to the Egyptians, saying, let my people go or else... And Pharaoh would say, okay, fine, the river of blood was enough, the darkness was enough, the locusts were enough, but each time he changed his mind, he hardened his heart. And so the last sign, the last miracle, the last plague, as it were, was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And the, the Lord told Moses, go to, Is- go to the people of Israel and tell them to take a hyssop branch and to cover their doorposts with blood, and the angel of death will pass by those homes. Every family killed a lamb cover the doorpost with blood and the angel of death passed by that it was a salvation from that death and it was a, it was what got Pharaoh to finally let the people go and it was known as passover every blood every every doorpost that's got the blood on it will be passed over and it was a, it was It was then commissioned or it was then given as a feast. Every year you will remember that the Lord your God did this. Every year you will remember this Passover with a feast. And so the Feast of Passover is a remembrance of this exodus from Egypt. They were saved by the blood that was on the doorpost. And that is clear as day pointing to Jesus Christ himself. The Lamb of God who actually takes away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and rams cannot cannot be for the remission of sins. The blood of Jesus actually is. The Passover feast was pointing to Jesus Christ, his blood. John 1 29, John the Baptist points his finger at Christ and he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the lamb that was actually sacrificed and actually was efficacious to save from sin, and he wasn't just killed, he was also killed during the Passover feast, A.D. 30 to 33. Nobody really agree, agrees about where in those three years, but somewhere between A.D. 30 and 33, Jesus was killed at Passover, fulfilling the very purpose for that feast to begin with. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty says that Christ rose from the dead, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead of myself, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, Christ, who is our Passover lamb, was sacrificed, Jesus fulfills the Passover feast by becoming the Lamb of God, whose blood shed actually was the punishment for sin, actually was the wrath of God being satisfied he fulfills that feast. Immediately following the Feast of Passover is the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus Christ spent three days in the tomb and then he rose from the dead. He is the first fruit. He is the first one of this new resurrected life who would never die again. His body never saw corruption. There's other people in the New Testament who rose from the dead, but those, those people died again. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died again. Jesus rose the young widow's son, the, the, the widow's young son, from the dead. That kid died again. Jesus is the first fruit of a new resurrection, of a new life, of eternal life, of, of spiritual life. He is our spiritual brother. The, fir- the Feast of First Fruits was held to, it was sort of a, it was sort of a, 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 a double meaning. The, fir- the Feast of First Fruits, on one hand, was a feast of gratitude. People were to sacrifice the first of their produce from their crop as a thank you to the Lord. Thank you for this produce. Thank you for this crop. Thank you for this harvest. And a prayer that that harvest, that that crop, that that produce would continue throughout the year. So it's a thank you for a right now and it's a prayer of hope for the future. And Christ is that. He is resurrected from the dead. He is the first fruit of the resurrection for those who have fallen asleep. And that's First Corinthians fifteen twenty. Christ rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus fulfills the Passover. He fulfills the first fruits, and he fulfills Pentecost. Pentecost, the word means, the Greek word for 50. And that's why it's called the, also the Feast of Weeks because it's, it's ordered in Leviticus 23 that 50 days after Passover, I'm trying to keep all this straight, 50 days after Passover, you would celebrate Pentecost and the reason being it was 50 days after, e- after Israel left Egypt, after the Passover, after the blood on the doorposts, after the lambs were slain. 50 days later, Israel was at Mount Sinai with Moses going up to receive the law written on tablets of stone. And Pentecost was a celebration. It was a commemoration of that law being given and it too was a celebration of the first fruits that were given for the year's yield. So you have a celebration of first fruits and you have a celebration of the law. And this is what Pentecost is all about. And here at this Pentecost in 33 AD, Jesus fulfills it because he stayed, remember in Acts chapter one, it says that he stayed with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them, he admonishes them, he tells them to stay put, and then he ascends into heaven. That's chapter one, verse three. He was with them for 40 days, he told them to wait, 10 days later, 50 total days, Pentecost occurs, and here we are with our story today. Jesus ascends up into heaven, and the Spirit comes down, not with the law written on tablets of stone like Moses did, but with the law that's going to be written on our hearts, fulfilling Ezekiel 36, which says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit comes into us. He regenerates us. We are born again and we're caused to actually care. We're caused to actually have concern and to have affection for God, for his law, for his rule. Moses went up Mount Sinai, came down with, with, with the Ten Commandments written on stone so that Israel would see this is how you are to live. This is how you are to behave. This is how you are to relate to the nations around you. But it was written on stone. This is how you fulfill God's purposes. Pentecost 33 AD, G- Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends with the law that actually comes into our heart and makes us these kinds of people. Not mechanical duty, not merit, not earning it, but we actually become holy and blameless and above reproach because Jesus fulfilled the law ceremonially, civilly, and, mor- and morally. All of it Jesus did, and we're given that record, we're given that life, and we actually are caused to care, to take up our cross. We actually want to do that. To deny self, we actually want to do that. We see what Jesus did on the cross and it changes us. And his Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. A heart that's concerned for his statutes. A heart heart that is concerned for his rules. And notice the the difference. Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my spirit spirit in you. And this is what will happen. I'll cause you to walk in my steps. I will make you care about my rules. I will make you care about what it is that I have for you. You will want to be Christ-like. You will want to honor God with your life. Juxtaposed with what Paul says, quoting from the Psalms in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes this, "'There is none who are righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have become altogether worthless. There is none who who do good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips.'" And their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is the human heart apart from God the Spirit. God the Spirit comes in and we actually become these kind of people that Ezekiel 36 is describing. That is a miracle. That is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to actually change our hearts and is a great evidence that we are actually saved. And this is a fulfillment of Pentecost. It's a first fruit not only of Christ rising from the dead and being in the first of the resurrection, but it's also the first fruit of the Holy Spirit being sent and the hope that we have in the future, the Holy Spirit comes and we're told in scripture, Ephesians 1.14, write this down. This is a radical verse, hold on to this, memorize it, write it on a sticky note, put it on your steering wheel, put it on the mirror in the bathroom. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the deposit of the inheritance until we actually take hold of it. That's a first fruit, we're born again. And we still live in this mess we still suffer just like everybody else but we have a hope we have an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading and every day the holy spirit's work is to point you to christ what he did what he tells us to do and the hope that we have because of what he's done he is the guarantee of our inheritance it's the first fruit of the harvest that is to come and of course here at pentecost the first fruit It's clear as day, we're gonna study this next week, but 3,000 people are saved. The Holy Spirit comes down, 120 people start speaking in tongues, 3,000 are saved from all over Mesopotamia and to Rome, all over the region, and they go back home. It's the first fruit of the explosion of a harvest of salvation that is to be world evangelization. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 9, he said, "'The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few, So ask the Lord to send out workers into the harvest. And at this moment, the workers actually didn't have to go anywhere. They were told to stay put. Everybody from the surrounding region came in because everybody came in for the feast at Pentecost. It was one of the required feasts to be at. And there they heard the gospel, and then they dispersed out throughout all of the empire. Jesus fulfills Passover. He fulfills first fruits. He fulfills Pentecost. And so they're gathered together, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. I want to focus on this word suddenly. I have a lot to say about this. The spirit of God is uncontrollable. We cannot force him to do anything. We cannot demand of him to do anything. We may pray. We We can make inquiry. We can request. But we cannot demand him to do anything. And I'm gonna hit this point again and again tonight because I think that there's damage done in the teaching. And there might be some of you who have been told this, there might be some, there are some of you, I've talked with some of you who, had, who told me that you have, you've grown up in churches or you've been in congregations where the pastor says, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. If you, don't, if you can't do healings, you're not saved. If you're sick, you're not saved. If you're poor, you're not saved because you don't have the faith to take care of your terrestrial circumstance. You don't have faith to take care of your finances. If you, were poor, if you were actually a believer, you wouldn't be poor. If you were actually a believer, you would be healthy. If you were actually a believer, your kids wouldn't be rebelling. That is a damnable lie. And I want to be clear. God the Spirit may give you the gift of tongues. That might be a gift that you have. You might... Give, have the gift of prophecy. People have spoken over me and I've had those experiences where I, I was like this, they like the reading your mail kind of stuff. I'm like, how did this person know? It was a word of encouragement from a brother who has the Holy Spirit living inside of him. I'm not discrediting that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying it absolutely does happen. What, I'm, what I am also saying is that if, if you've never experienced that, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. I have never spoken in tongues. I have never had a word from the Lord except what's written right here. I've never experienced that. But I know people who have. I know people who I trust, who tell the most incredible stories of how God the Spirit manifested to them in a way that is supernatural. But the Spirit here came suddenly. It was a surprise. They were even told by Jesus, go and wait. The Spirit's going to come and yet even then in waiting, even then in in, in this half expecting position, he still just showed up out of the blue in a way that they did not see, in a way that they did not understand and they were infused with power because God the Spirit does what God the Spirit wants to do. And in his sovereignty, and in his power, and in his wisdom, he chose to show up on this day in this way, fulfilling Pentecost. While there was people from all over the all over the empire there that needed to hear the gospel, we see God the Spirit all the way through Scripture. This is how uncontainable he is. He's right there on the very first page, Genesis chapter one, verse two. He's hovering over the waters. Exodus chapter three. He manifests in a burning bush. To Moses. In Exodus thirteen he shows up as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the New Testament his very presence is in Christ himself. John three thirty four says that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit manifests as like a dove in Mark chapter one at Jesus' baptism. In Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit manifests with the shaking of a building. In Acts chapter 6, the Holy Spirit manifests as Stephen's face shines like an angel just before he's killed. In Acts chapter 9, the Holy Spirit manifests in this giant bright light that blinded Saul who would become Paul. And Jesus' voice spoke from that light. In Acts chapter 16, the Holy Spirit manifests as an earthquake. Here he manifests like a violent wind and like tongues of fire. And I love that it says like. It's not actually fire and it's not actually wind, but it's like that. When you hear a hurricane, it's like that. It's that sound. It's like the wind. It's like, you ever seen the the flickering of a flame? It was like that. But us humans are always going to be limited when we're speaking about things that are not created. When we're speaking about things that that are eternal, we can only use created language. We can only say it was, he was like a dove. This experience was like fire. Because he's beyond our grasp, because he is beyond our intellect, he is beyond our knowledge, he is beyond our language. He is God, he is the third person of our Trinitarian Godhead. He shows up suddenly. Verse three, and there appeared like tongues of fire that were distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Verse four, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're going to, we're going to dive into this, we have to, it's inevitable, throughout the entire book of Acts because we have signs and wonders, we have miracles, we have tongues all through the book. And so I'm not gonna be able to do an in-depth study of this tonight, but I do want to at least begin by distinguishing between two realities and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling up of the Holy Spirit. Those are two different things. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a positional reality. God the Spirit comes, makes you be born again quickens you to the things of God, gives you a heart of flesh, you have affection for God, you repent of your sins, you realize that you see Jesus on the cross and for the first time, it's not just Jesus, felt board Jesus third grade Sunday school. It's not just mysticism. It's not just myth. It's not just lies. It's not just fairy tales. The resurrected Christ is actually God and you realize that and you bow the knee. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. And it puts you into a position. It, it brings you into the family of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is positional and may or may not be accompanied by signs and wonders or even feelings. When I became a Christian, my, the feelings that I had were awful. Awful absolutely awful because I gave Jesus what was left of my life. My life had completely fallen apart. Most of you know that story. But I fell face first on the ground in my parents driveway in the pouring down rain at seven o'clock in the morning in December. It was cold. I was broken. I was sad. I was depressed. I was unhealthy. My life had completely been devastated and I gave Jesus everything that I had left. It felt bad. But then it began to feel really good but my position changed. But I still, I look the same, I sound the same. It's a positional reality. He comes and he gives you a new heart and he unifies the church. Christians in Portland, Oregon, Christians in Dubai, Christians in Africa, Christians in Peru, and in Mexico, we are united with something thicker than blood. The, The old saying that blood is Thicker than water was actually attributed to Christians who are united by the blood of Christ, even more with an even greater intensity and strength than our own family. The, the Holy Spirit unites the church. We're told in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen for by one Spirit we were baptized into the body. Jew, or Greek, or slave, or free, we all drink of the same spirit. The church is a unified body, and the Holy Spirit not only unifies the body, but he guarantees our inheritance. Again, Ephesians 1.14, he is a promise. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a guarantee that you have an inheritance waiting for you. Until you take possession of it, you have the Holy Spirit guiding you and directing you in this life. He is your promise. He is your guarantee. Philippians 1 verse 6 says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the daily work of the Holy Spirit reminding you again and again and again who you are, who you are in Christ, what Christ has done, assuring you of the hope that you have, assuring you of the, of the heaven that is ahead of you, which is what we need to get through this life well. And he, rem- and he reminds us of that Romans eight sixteen, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if we are children of God then we are heirs of God we are co-heirs with Christ we get what Jesus gets do you have that verse memorized do you have it in your brain so that the Holy Spirit can bring that to your mind to remind you when you're down and out and depressed and anxiety-ridden and the only thing that you had for breakfast is your self-hate monologue which is what I actually have quite often The Spirit testifies with our spirit that you are a child of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, you have a great hope awaiting you. And it's the Holy Spirit's work to remind you of that every single day. Romans 8, 29 and 30, those that he predestined, he called. Those that he called, he justified. Those that he justified, he glorified. The Holy Spirit is your promise. He is your promise that you are headed to heaven. Your life might be like this, or it just might be like this sometimes but you're headed for heaven. Remember what the Holy Spirit's work is to do, is to bring to remembrance. Jesus said that his work is to testify about me. The Holy Spirit will remind you of Jesus Christ, remind you of the position that you have in him. I'm being redundant on purpose. I want you guys to, to understand this, and I need to understand this. I need to remember this. I need to tell myself this again and again and again. And the reason why, notice this, predestined, called, justified, glorified. We haven't been glorified yet. We're still here in this fallen Corporeal world, we're here on this mortar coil. But the reason why Paul uses past tense language is because we're talking about the work of God, and the work of God is so sure and so promised and so guaranteed that he's writing as if it had already happened. And the Holy Spirit's part of the Holy Spirit's work. A big part of His work is to remind you of that daily to renew your minds. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Who renews your mind? The Holy Spirit by practice of the word. This is the the fuel. the fire that he sets in your soul. He cleans up our character. He changes our hearts. He gives us a new love and affection for godliness and being conformed to the character of Christ. Galatians 5.22, there's a list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the kind of person that the Holy Spirit is turning us into, the kind of person that Jesus is. And we fight against the flesh by the power of the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says that the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh are opposed to one another. And if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, you know exactly what I mean by that. We're born again. Jesus sends us in the direction of his character by the power of his Holy Spirit. But we see all these cute, shiny, sexy things and our old nature riles up inside of us. And we have to discipline ourselves. And the Holy Spirit is the one who checks us and says, that's not who you are anymore. That's not the kingdom that you're called to and that's not emulating Christ here on earth. You want, people, you want to be salt, you want to be light? Get out of this, get out of the drugs, get out of the sex, get out of the porn, get out of whatever it is. It's not condemnation, it's not shame on you, it's you have more than that. He will convict you. And it might feel like shame on you but he's doing it for, you good, for your good. We're told in the Bible that the Lord disciplines the ones who are his children. And he, unlike human beings, a lot of times he is a good and perfect disciplinarian. This, this work, this assurance, this reminding, this call back to, to who Jesus is and what he has done, this back to basics you could, you could think of it, is let's call it the ordinary day-to-day function of God the Spirit in our daily lives. And it's important and it cannot be overlooked. And the reason why I'm hitting it so hard is because... I think that we're naturally, many of us, if not all of us, are naturally inclined towards the shiny things. We want, we want to go to the churches where there's gold dust falling from the ceiling, or we get gold teeth, or manna shows up in our Bible. This, you can look it up. These are the things that people are pursuing. We want a word of revelation. We want a prophecy. We want to speak in tongues. And the speaking in tongues and the prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14, it's okay. There's a place for that. But I don't want us to forget about this. This is the daily grind. This is the daily work. Don't overlook this. This is beautiful. And this actually came to, to weigh on me heavily. I was reminded of this, this week because I had a, I might go over by telling this story. I wasn't gonna, but I'm gonna. Um, I had a meeting this week with a woman who used to be my neighbor. I moved into a house in 2008 and this gal was my neighbor. And in 2008, I was hell on wheels. And maybe this woman will come to church and she'll tell you, she wanted to kill me. She told me, she's like, I wanted to sneak into your house and shoot you in your sleep. Because I was, I, was, I, was I was awful. I had these giant house parties. I'd throw these like triple kegers. My house was like 600 square feet. It was just not enough space. 40 people would come. It was mayhem. It was debauchery. It was hedonism at its finest. It was ugly. It was a mess. And this girl lived next door to me. And that's how she knew me. She knew me as that guy. And I moved away. I moved away in 2010 and I never saw her again. But then I bumped into her just up the street a few months ago. 2022. 12 years later, we bumped into each other. What are you doing? What's going on? I'm a pastor now. What? You're a pastor? That's weird. I know it's weird. So anyways, she comes over and we're talking here at the church just this last Wednesday. And we're talking about the old days. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, regeneration, how he changes you, how Jesus changed me, how I became a Christian. And... I mentioned an old friend of mine who used to be in the neighborhood, and she, at his name, the mention of his name, she goes, he doesn't think that you should be a pastor. He thinks it's kind of a joke. And I I feel that. I know it. This is a guy that I I don't have much connection with. We actually share tattoos, we were tattoo bros, we used to live together, we were best of friends once upon a time, we lost touch, but he remembers me from 2008. He remembers me from 2009 and 2010. And whenever he hears Ian's a pastor, he's like, (laughs) that's a joke, Ian's a fraud. Now he hasn't been in and around my life for the last five or six years, so he doesn't know. But I felt that and I know that that's true. I know that there's people that feel that way. There's people who haven't been around the last five or six years and they hear that Ian's a pastor at Dora Hope and they laugh and they mock and that's fine and that's fair but I was, I was feeling it. I was feeling that like that self-hate monologue just kicked in and me and my little girl were on a walk I think it was Friday night, she was real fussy, it was 8 or 9 at night, it was, it was dark, it was cold, we, I wrapped her up and we went for a long walk to settle her down and I was just praying to the Lord, I was praying for Ella, I was praying for her life, I was praying for the sermon, I was praying for the ministry and I forgot. I, I use this verse so much, I preach this verse, I tell you guys about this verse so much, Colossians chapter 1, 22 and 23 you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's me. He, Jesus, reconciled in his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. If you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you are saved, do you believe that about yourself. Because I believe... What my old friend believes. Well, Ian in 2008, (laughs) never going to be a pastor. I don't even know if that guy's a Christian. I, I feel that. And it took the Holy Spirit reminding me in prayer, brought to memory a verse that's right here in this Bible. You're holy and you're blameless and above reproach. And I thought, man, I'm still floored by that. Thank you, Lord, because I'm not that on my own. I'm only that because it's a gift that Jesus gave And that's true for all of us. It's a gift that he gives. It's a perfect righteousness that is not ours, but he gives it to us as if it is ours. And the Holy Spirit, that's the work, the daily reminder, just the the daily mortal coil that we're on, needing to recall to our minds again and again and again the truths of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. It's right here in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit will call it to your mind. Jesus promised that he would. He said he will call to mind all that I have said. So don't overlook that. In searching of the gifts or the quote unquote real work of the Holy Spirit, don't neglect that daily reminder because the rebirth itself is a vast miracle. That is the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's positional. It's true of you whether you feel it or not. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something different. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that's extraordinary. It's something that's, that's supernatural. It's something that you don't see every day. It's something that you may not expect all the time. It's a special power for a specific purpose at a specific time. And we see it all through the scriptures. All the way back in Exodus chapter 31, a guy whose name is Bezalel or Bezalel, something like that. It says that this guy was full of the Holy Spirit. With an ability, an intelligence, and a knowledge for craftsmanship. He was one of the guys who did all the detailed work for the tabernacle as, they were, as Israel was in, its, in their wandering years. He had a gift of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit for this specific task. He had this immense... An incredible craftsmanship ability that was a gift of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 2.2, 2, he says, the Spirit entered into me. In Luke chapter 1, there's a whole family. John the Baptist, his mom Elizabeth, and his dad Zechariah, it says all three of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.15 actually says that John the, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit even when he was in his mother's womb. Because he had a specific thing to do. He was the last of the Old Testament era prophets. He was the one who pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here, the gift or the filling up of the Holy Spirit is that they spoke in other tongues. And it's clear as day why. It's obvious right on the front of the page why this happened. The gospel is not for one nation, not for one race, not for one demographics, for the whole world. Started with Israel. From Israel went out and the best way to do that was to wait for a feast where everybody came to them the holy spirit came they were filled with the holy spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the spirit was giving them utterance the gospel was preached and the first fruits of the harvest were had three thousand people were saved that day and went back to where they had come from tongues here is important it's not the essence it was a specific gift there was people from all these different languages from all these different places that came together and god the spirit gave these 120 people the ability to preach the gospel to them and they did 3000 people became saved and they went back to where they came from the first fruits of a worldwide gospel message and it is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation, Romans one sixteen. This is the reverse of Babel, the scattering of confusion. This is a bringing in for gospel purposes so that they can then go out. Matthew 28, go into all the world, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It started right here at Pentecost. Verse 5, and now there are Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation, under heaven and when this sound occurred the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language that word bewildered is funny and so they were astounded and they were marveling and they were saying behold are not all these who are speaking Galileans they were surprised at the Galilean thing because remember there's there is racial tension going on in this time and it was pretty intense It's nothing new to us. This has been going on for all of human history. The Galileans were thought of as these podunk, nitwit, uneducated morons. And so to have a group of 120 of them speaking in these diverse languages was confusing. But is it not true that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? These Galileans spoke all of these languages and it was confusing. Verse 8, And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? And there's this long list. But to summarize, it's all from Persia, Mesopotamia, Asia Minor, Africa, Rome, Crete, and Arabia. All the way to the east to Persia, all the way to the west to Rome, all the way down south to Arabia. A huge landmass. I, I forgot to prepare. I was going to put a map up here and just show you the extent of coverage that that was. But it's huge. It's all, almost all of the ancient world. People from all of these different places, all of these different languages, all of these different cultures, Jesus says, "You, yes. Heaven is going to be a multicultural experience. It's going to be awesome. They were speaking as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, verse 11, and we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty works of God, or the mighty deeds. God there's no telling exactly what was preached there's no telling exactly the specifics of what was shared there but no doubt the climax the number one thing that was shared the mighty work of God that was preached to them is the gospel itself in John chapter 6 a group of people come to Jesus and they say what are the works notice the plural they say what are the works that we must do to be doing the works of God and Jesus says he answers in the singular he says this is the work believe in him who he has sent That's the work. The mightiest deed of God is that he so loved the world, he sent his one and only begotten son, so that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And there are some in the crowd, verse 12, that continued in astonishment and great perplexity and saying to one another, what does this mean? That might be an honest inquiry. That might be an honest question. We will consider that next week, but tonight what I want to focus on as we close out in the next couple of minutes There were some that were maybe actually asking, what does this mean in verse 13? But others were mocking and they were saying they are full of new wine, they're drunk. And as we're gonna see next week, this happened at 9 a.m. And Peter seems to think that's a sufficient reason for them to not be drunk because it's so early. Not where I come from, but that's besides the point. They are full of new wine, there's a mockery. And the reason why I wanna land here and I wanna finish here is because this is pretty much for those of us who live in North America this is about the extent of the persecution that we're seeing right now it's just that people make fun of us they call us names they say things keyboard warriors get on there and have just <laughs> unlimited venture into just smack talk but that's pretty much where it starts that's that's pretty much it it's just ah they're full they're full of new wine they're drunk they're dumb they're uneducated they're closed-minded We don't need to take them very seriously. That's about the extent of it. But something that I think about a lot, a lot, is that it could very well get a lot worse. And it did get a lot worse for the people in Acts. Here in chapter 2, there's just smack talk. Ah, they're drunk, disregard them, mocking them, making fun of them, not that big of a deal. But it doesn't take very long for it to escalate. In chapter 4, Peter and John heal a guy who's unable to walk. And it causes quite a stir because the guy's in his 40s and everybody knows this guy, this is the guy and he's healed and we don't know what to make of this. And so Peter and John are brought in and they're asked a bunch of questions. There's this inquiry that's made. Chapter four, verse seven, they're taken in by the rulers and they're placed in their midst and it says, they begin to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Notice this, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, And then he goes on to explain this man is healed in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. It started with an inquiry. But then in verse 21, it says, and when they had threatened them further, they let them go on account of the people because they were glorifying God for what had happened. So it it started with mockery. They're just drunk. And then it started with cynical questioning. And then there was threatening. They threatened them and they let them go. And then in chapter five, They laid hands on the apostles, and they put them in the public jail. Mocking, smack talk, cynical questioning, threats, and now jail. Chapter 5, verse 40 says that they, after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So there's mockery, there's questioning, there's threats, there's jail, there's abuse, And then in chapter 7, Stephen is murdered for his faith. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and by chapter 7, one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus has been killed because of his allegiance to the resurrected Christ, to our Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Persecution right now for us isn't really all that bad. People call us drunks. People make fun of us. They mock us. Friends it might very well get worse. Every one of the disciples, every one of, his 12, every one of Jesus' 12 apostles died a horrifying death. John was spared from martyrdom, but he was boiled in a vat of oil. And then he was banished to a prison island called Patmos. He died an old man, but he died with heavy, heavy bodily scars. And I know that's a downer, but we're warned about it all over scripture. And friends, I implore you to ask yourself, am I really in this? Who is Jesus Christ to you really? Because the heat might get turned up, the persecution might get worse. So how are we supposed to deal with that? How are we supposed to think about that? How are we supposed to process that? How are we supposed to prepare for that? In faith, faith that when the time comes, the Holy Spirit will give you the utterance of what to say, that you shouldn't be concerned. That was a promise and a command. Of Jesus, but also going back to what we started with. The gates of hell will come against the church, Matthew 16, but will not prevail. Ephesians 1, 14, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of the inheritance that you have in heaven. And 1 Peter chapter 1 says that that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Revelation 21 says that that inheritance is a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, because these former things have passed away. I would hope that you guys would go home and read this and memorize this because this is how, if the church is going to be persecuted severely in the Americas, in North America, here in Portland, if it's going to happen, this is what we're going to need. This is Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Just listen to these words. Even if you know them, listen to them again. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, but rather who was raised, who is now sitting at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ then? Will affliction? Will sword? Will turmoil? Will persecution? Will famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. If persecution comes, not only will we be able to handle it, but we will be able to smile and pray for those who persecute us and show them love and turn the other cheek and not revile, not return reviling with reviling, not return eye for eye and tooth for tooth and burn for burn and cut for cut but to bless those who curse us like Jesus did, who uttered not a word. Because he had a hope of a victory beyond this planet for the hope set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews tells us. His ascension, Acts chapter one, his ascension is a preview of the hope that we have. Jesus said in John five that there will be a resurrection. There'll be a bodily resurrection to either life or to punishment and the only way to life is through jesus christ he is the way the truth and the life and his ascension is a preview and it's proof he is who he said he is this is the life that we have to look forward to so if the day comes friends be reminded of how good and how in control jesus is he's awesome amen amen i'm going to close out in prayer nico can come back up we'll have some worship songs. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. I pray, Lord, that you might move mightily by your Holy Spirit that people might have visions and dreams, that there might be tongues, and that all of the gifts might be done in a way that is biblical and is orderly and is honoring to 1st Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. And Lord that we would but Lord that we would that we would not forget the daily obedience, the daily reminder that Jesus, your Lord, Jesus, you are King, you are in control. That we might remember that even in that moment on the cross when it looked as if you were absolutely obliterated, that you were still in control, you were still loving, you were still giving, that it's your grace and it's your mercy that led you to the cross out of love for us to begin with. I pray, Lord, that you might lay a heavy hand on this people by the power of your spirit, that you might bless them, that you might reveal to them that they are really, really loved, really loved, cosmically loved. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that you change hearts, that you bring people to real repentance, that you bring real renewal, real regeneration, that people are born again that they are lit on fire, that they are baptized, and that they are filled, and that they go out and they proclaim the gospel to the world around them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before I get down, I wrote wrote this here and I I didn't know if I was gonna use it or not, and I didn't, but I feel like I should still read it. This is an excerpt from uh, the pastor D.L. Moody. Some of you may know, some of you may not. He's, He's an old dead guy. But the Lord moved powerfully, powerfully through him. And he wrote of a, of a time when the Holy Spirit suddenly showed up, unexpected but in power. He wrote this in his journal. His, his church had been burned down. His home has been, had been burned down in the Great Chicago Fire. And he went to New York to actually seek out some people who had a lot of money who could maybe rebuild his church. And while he was there in New York, he had this, this event on this specific day. And he wrote about it. And this is what he said. He said, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot hardly describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and that I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went on to preaching all over again. The same sermons, they were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet, hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as the small dust of the balance. Door of Hope has always been a church that's prayed for revival. And you know, guys, I got to tell you, I, I tried to be a cessationist. I, I tried to be a guy who believed that the gifts of the Spirit were a thing of the past. Um, we'll talk more about that as Acts continues, but I'm not a cessationist because the work of world evangelism is not done. I think there's an orderly way to do it. I think that there's a biblical way to do it, but I don't think that the gifts are... I don't think that the gifts are done because the gospel is still going forth to every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. That work started at Pentecost and it has not yet finished. And Jesus invites us into that work. So with that, let's pray that the, that the Holy Spirit, that God through his Holy Spirit lays his presence so heavy on us that we gotta be like, dude, chill. It's too much. It's too heavy. Thank you. And let's get to work.